Varmt välkommen. Du lyssnar på en inspelning från internationell författarscen på Kulturhuset Stadsteatern med författaren Ian McEwan i samtal med Hans-Olaf Bränner. Mitt namn är Ingemar Fast. Jag är litteratur- och bibliotekschef i detta stora allkonsthus vid Sägelstorg i Stockholm. Låt samtalet ta sin början. Welcome. Uh, Thank you. Back on this stage, you've been here several times before, um, and you're a much awaited guest on on this stage. I know that you haven't reached to do that much in in Stockholm yet this time. No, I just um, got off the plane. <laughs> <laughs> There's more to come. You're going to the um, literary festival uh, or the, the the event in in Gothenburg as well. That's correct. Uh, I think we could start this off, if you, you're okay with that, with a little reading from uh, um, your latest novel, actually, the one that is now being published in Swedish, with the title Domaren, as um, you've seen already. Yes. Translating the title of this book uh, around the world has been very difficult, actually, because there isn't a piece of legislation outside of the English and Welsh jurisdiction called the Children Act, so it's gone from versions of the benefit of children, the well-being of children, now the judge. Um, and the Brazilian title was the most exotic. It's called The Ballad of Adam Henry, <laughs> uh, which sounds to me like a Bob Dylan song. So I, I, didn't, I didn't mind that at all. What, what I'll do is just read the opening two or three pages, because I think long readings are very boring, and everybody can read books themselves. Unless you're 10 years old and in your pajamas uh, and you've just brushed your teeth, I think it's um, not really an adult pursuit. London, Trinity term, one week old, implacable June weather. Fiona May, a high court judge at home on Sunday evening, supine on a chaise longue, staring past her stocking feet towards the end of the room, towards a partial view of recessed bookshelves by the fireplace, and to one side, by a tall window, a tiny Renoir lithograph of a bather, bought by her 30 years ago for 50 pounds, probably a fake. Below it, centered on a round walnut table, a blue vase. No memory of how she came by it, nor when she last put flowers in it. The fireplace, not lit in a year. Blackened raindrops falling irregularly into the grate with a ticking sound against balled-up yellowing newsprint. A Bacara rug spread on a wide, polished floorboard. Looming at the edge of vision, A baby grand piano bearing silver-framed family photos on its deep black shine. On the floor, by the chaise long, within her reach, the draft of a judgment. And Fiona was on her back, wishing all this stuff at the bottom of the sea. All this sorrow... Sorry. In her hand was her second scotch and water. She was feeling shaky, still recovering from a bad moment with her husband. She rarely drank, but the Talisgaran tap water was a balm, and she thought she might cross the room to the sideboard for a third. Less scotch, more water, for she was in court tomorrow, and she was duty judge now, available for any sudden demand, even as she lay recuperating. 
he had made a shocking declaration and placed an impossible burden on her. For the first time in years, she had actually shouted and some faint echo still resounded in her ears. You idiot, you fucking idiot. She had not sworn out loud since her carefree teenage visits to Newcastle, though a potent word sometimes intruded on her thoughts when she heard self-serving evidence or an irrelevant point of law. And then, not long after that, wheezy with outrage, she had said loudly at least twice, how dare you? It was hardly a question, but he answered it calmly. I need it, he said. I'm 59, this is my last shot. I've yet to hear evidence for an afterlife. A pretentious remark, and she'd been lost for a reply. She simply stared at him, and perhaps her mouth was open. In the spirit of the staircase, she had a response now on the chaise longue. 59? Jack, you're 60. It's pathetic. It's banal. What she'd actually said at the time was, this is too ridiculous. And he said, Fiona, when did we last make love? When did they? He had asked this before in moods plaintive to querulous, but the crowded recent past can be difficult to recall. The family division teemed with strange differences, special pleading, intimate half-truths, exotic accusation. And as in all branches of law, fine-grained particularities of circumstance needed to be assimilated at speed. Last week, she heard final submissions from divorcing Jewish parents, unequally orthodox, disputing their daughter's education. The draft of her completed judgment was on the floor beside her. Tomorrow, coming before her again, would be a despairing Englishwoman, gaunt, pale, highly educated, mother of a five-year-old girl. The woman convinced, despite assurances to the court, to the contrary, that her daughter was about to be removed from the jurisdiction by the father, a Moroccan businessman and strict Muslim, to a new life in Rabat, where he intended to settle. Otherwise, routine wrangles over residence of children, over houses, pensions, earnings, inheritance. It was the larger estates that came to the high court. Wealth mostly failed to bring extended happiness. Parents soon learned the new vocabulary and patient procedures of the law and were dazed to find themselves in vicious combat with the one they had once loved. And waiting off stage, boys and girls first named in the court documents, troubled little Bens and Sarahs, huddling together while the gods above them fought to the last, from the family proceedings court to the high court to the court of appeal. All this sorrow had common themes. There was a human sameness to it, but it continued to fascinate her. She believed she brought reasonableness to hopeless situations. On the whole, she believed in the provisions of family law. In her optimistic moments, she took it as a significant marker in civilization's progress to fix in the statutes the child's needs above its parents. Her days were full, and in the evenings, recently, various dinners, something at Middle Temple for a retiring colleague, a concert at King's Place, Schubert, Scriabin, and taxis, tube trains, dry cleaning to collect, a letter to draft about a special school for the cleaning lady's autistic son, and finally sleep. Where was the sex? At that moment, she couldn't recall. She said, I don't keep a record. He spread his hands, resting his case. <laughs> mm. 
One thing that I find very striking about this first chapter is how many elements you introduce in this chapter in a very, very seamless way. Um, the circumstances in uh, your main character, Fiona May's life. So how many rewritings are needed to make it this seamless? How many rewritings? Well, it's so difficult now with word processing, um, which I like, uh, and I think fits very well with working at the same time in longhand. But I'm always rewriting. I mean, each morning I look at the work from the day before and correct it, and there's no trace then of the draft that was before it. To the despair of, I suppose, maybe in 200 years' time, if anybody cares about anything of mine, there won't be a proper record. And I should make more efforts about this. It's a rolling process, but every now and then I do print out the whole draft, and one of the pleasures, one of the many pleasures of, of living by being a writer is to sit in lamplight at night with a glass of red wine and a black pen and read for the first time a printout. It's almost like publication day. I tend to save it up. A bit of forgetfulness, a bit of distance uh, is, is, is quite useful to see it through a stranger's eyes. So that, I guess, counts as a draft, and maybe there'll be four or five of those um, to answer your question. But this was always going to be a short novel. I always thought it would be you know, around about 50 or 60,000 words. It had two strands. The high court judge's private life. Her husband has declared that he wants to go and have an affair with a younger woman. It's his last go. He wants to do it with her permission. Uh, no deception. No deception. Uh, they've been married 35 years. Uh, and she goes to court the next morning to deal with a tidal wave of human sorrow and confusion and misunderstanding, always with this matter in her head. Her husband has left the apartment with a suitcase and his briefcase and he's taken off. She doesn't know if or when he's coming back. But like most of us, she can um, put things in compartments and it's possible to put a bit of present sorrow in a box and it only comes out of the box when she has a moment to think about herself. So the process of making this first chapter, and I'm flattered that you think it's seamless, was really just to get these two, I imagine them as two pieces of wool that you're going to braid. And it was that process that, uh, that was my main focus. Mm. And you do it without it becoming too much, and that's very, very impressive, I think. And she's sitting there, and you said that she has this ability of putting things in, into compartments. I don't know if all people share that ability. That has something to do with her also, maybe, as a person. No, I think it's part of being human. I mean, if we thought of everything all the time, we'd go nuts. Um, we have to put things, you know, there's, there's always something going wrong with your family. So that has, to be, <laughs> that has to be in a box with a very heavy lid. Then uh, there's always something going wrong with your work. Uh, there's always something going wrong with the city or the weather or politics. I mean, you can't have them all open at once. <laughs> <laughs> but you've described her, I've seen, as, as uh, very rational and self-contained then, at least, in mm. a way. 
there's this sort of standard view that um, men are hopeless at the emotions and women are so articulate. And I thought, how interesting it would be to have a woman who was not all that good at the emotions. Because um, I think actually this being useless at it is fairly well spread across the genders. Um, she doesn't know how to deal with this. Although at the same time, I don't know how anyone could deal with it. I mean, she gets angry. But, uh, she can't solve it. She's not going to say, yes, go and have an affair. Uh, but she's also nearly 60 herself, and she doesn't relish spending the last 20 years of her life alone. Um, probably thrown out of their flat because it's tied to um, you know, the inns of court. As soon as you've retired as a judge, you have to move out. So she doesn't relish a lonely life either. Um, so I'm not sure how, you know, what would be the rash or the clever emotional way of dealing with this. No. But she but flounders. She doesn't have the language for it. That's mm. true. But she's not the kind of, well, she, she considers calling uh, a female friend to empty herself uh, yes. of all of this, but she uh, reasons uh, not to do it because probably she doesn't want to become the victim then. Yes, at one moment she reflects um, on how in the 19th century, and she's thinking, you know, Anna Karenin or Emma Bovary or you know, the endless novels about marriage, that this would be a matter of public disgrace. Now it's a matter of public sympathy and gossip. And she thinks, which is worse of these two? It's still not good. And also, um, don't you think this is true sometimes? If you have a problem, the moment you start telling it to someone, it, re it becomes real. You know, it's mm. out there. Mm. It's like, it's, you know, it's, suddenly it's in someone else's head and you see their shock or sympathy beaming back and then you know it's absolutely real. And of course, in essence, we have to share problems, but there's always that reluctance to to cross the line, because it might all, he might change his mind, he might come back, she doesn't want to step out of um, the intimacy of her marriage. So she's locked in for the um, short spread of this novel. Hmm. And there will be a generation now, maybe, of men using the, the, this trick to make their wives co-responsible for their infidel infidelity. It didn't need me, I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but the religious aspect of this novel is kind of introduced with, uh, with him saying something like he, he hasn't found any evidence for, for, a, for an afterlife then. Mm. So why not just go on getting this last passion? Yes, I mean, there's a ruthless, self-interested logic in him saying he wants... He says to her, for example, blacking out with the sheer ecstasy of, of it. Remember that, you know... Um, and she does, but she's not prepared to turn her life upside down for a mere bolt of pleasure, whereas he is. Um, so it's very human, it's very weak, um, and that's what uh, novels mostly do, pursue these moments of, of weakness, and error and misunderstanding. Um, and then we have to talk a little about the, the genesis of this novel, because it started out, I read, at a, at a dinner table, actually. I sat... I mean, it was a very strange dinner I went to, um, where nearly everybody around the table was a judge. 
and you know you've got to a certain stage in life when you've got a judge for a friend. I mean, <laughs> my friends used to be marginal people and crazy people on the edge, and now I know judges. And so, <laughs> uh, uh, so there was my friend, who's a very distinguished high court judge, and actually he helped me a lot with the detail of this novel of court procedures and little things like that. But he'd invited a few other very distinguished judges around the table, and they started talking about each other's judgments. They knew each other's judgments. They remembered them. They quoted from each other's judgments. Uh, often, you know, with a great deal of congratulation or applause, and they were very tough on the judges who were stupid enough not to be present. Um, <laughs> and. I thought, this is just like a bunch of novelists around a table. <laughs> anyway, at one point, my friend who was hosting the dinner got up to settle a point of fact about one of his judgments. Uh, and to my amazement, he took off the shelf this huge bound volume of his judgments. And about half an hour later, coffee time, I went to one side and started thumbing through it. Now, my friend was a judge in the family division. Um, I skimmed through about three judgments. Um, usually, uh, I mean, the, the, at least one of them was about um, separation of Siamese twins. The parents didn't want the, the, child, the, the Siamese twins separated because one child would die and the other one would flourish. The one who would certainly die was going to die anyway. If, it, if they were not separated, it would take the other one with it. But to separate them, you'd have to cut through the aorta of the, of the weaker child, who had no brain, hardly any brain, and all the circulation of the blood was done by the heart of the healthy baby. And that would sooner or later kill it too. So, Two babies dead if you left them together, one baby to flourish. And yet it became a huge case because the parents were very devout Catholics and they felt that only God could make a decision like this. Uh, and this decision of life should not be in the hands of the courts. And so that view had to be taken very seriously because I'm sure it's the same in Swedish law and English law uh, treating someone against their will or against the will of their parents is a very serious matter. Um, I read this transfixed and I thought, this is a novel. This is a, whole, this is a moral dilemma that Flaubert would have, or Tolstoy would have absolutely adored. And then turned the page and there was a case of uh, parents contesting the future of their children, divorcing parents, one of them wanted brought up in a strict um, religious upbringing. One of them wanted a slightly less strict upbringing and they were fighting to the death. And I, was, I thought that literature has mostly plumbed, when it comes to law, it has mostly plumbed the criminal courts and it's murder, rape, major theft, armed robbery. Uh, events that mostly, I hope, don't touch our lives. But this matter, love and the end of love and matters of life and death and children are much more down among 
the daily dilemmas that people can face. And yet, I couldn't remember ever reading about the family division of the legal system. And so I put it at the back of my mind then that one of these days I would come back to this. I was just starting Sweet Tooth then, my last novel before. No, sorry, Solar. I was writing Solar. So my mind was on climate change, and I, and I thought, <laughs> I will get to this one day. And so that was how, I don't know, about two, two or three years ago, the same judge told me a story about a case he had been the judge of, and there was a Jehovah's Witness teenager boy who was refusing a blood transfusion that would save his life. And the hospital wanted to transfuse him against his will. And because he was almost of the age of majority, again, it was a very delicate matter because the courts don't like to give hospitals permission to treat people against their will. Uh, and as soon as, even as he was halfway through telling me this, uh, especially when he got to the bit when he said that when he gave permission to the hospital to treat the boy against his will and against the parents' will, the parents wept but they wept with joy. And I thought, ah, the human, the human thing. They had, they had acted in accordance with the dictates of their church, mm -hmm. but they get to keep their child. Mm -hmm. The responsibility had been lifted from their shoulder. And I thought, that's for me. I must write that before anyone else does. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. It was. A not a totally similar case, but it was a case in, in Norway where a, a pregnant woman um, got a blood transfusion during giving birth and she was a Jehovah's Witness. Um, and she brought a case? Yeah. She brought the case. But now it was reported yeah. everything was good with the mother and the child. So yeah. it's kind of a good solution probably without me knowing the case then. Mm. But it's, it's difficult. I mean, while I was writing the novel, uh, because I had Google searches on these things automatically coming up, every two or three weeks, somewhere around the world, there was an issue of blood transfusion, Jehovah's Witnesses and, and the courts. Hmm. So it is, I'm not gonna say it's common, but it's, it happens a fair amount. Uh, there's quite a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses who really want to reform this because um, it only dates from 1945. And it came out of some internal politics at the top of the Jehovah's Witness Church in, in Brooklyn, in the United States. But it stands, I think, for uh, that, that relationship that orthodox religion has to sacred texts. And they become, you know, and they obviously are, articles of faith. They are sort of testing points, really, of that faith. And from the point of view of someone like me who has no religion, uh, seeing these parents who could be extremely loving, uh, highly intelligent in, in every other respect, and yet there is this, this hook, really, that holds them from what would seem from the outside to be a humane and compassionate, simple matter of having a blood transfusion to save a child. Uh, it becomes a sticking point. But what kind of feelings do these cases evoke in you then? Is it anger or is it curious interest? Well, curiosity, um, a sense of waste, really. Um, 
I didn't, I mean, I, I did a fair amount of research for this book, but on the Jehovah's Witnesses, you don't have to research, they come to you. Um, uh, and I was always very open. I'd say to them, well, uh, listen, I'm not going to let Jesus into my life, but I would like to ask you a few questions. And their eyes would glaze over at this point, and they would start looking at their watches, but still, they were always very polite. And I said, tell me if you had an eight-year-old daughter and she urgently needed a blood transfusion and it would save her life uh, and otherwise she would die, what would you do? The, the last time I asked this question, there was a young man, uh, I mean, in his early 30s, and he said, well, actually, I do have two children and, yes, um, I would refuse on her behalf a blood transfusion. And he said, the problem for you as an atheist is that you think that death is the end of everything. Whereas we know that death is the beginning of something. And our daughter would enter the paradise on earth. So um, it was not as if he lacked compassion for his daughter, but he just had a, a belief set that, was, um, that made it possible. I mean, a very firm belief, in other words, in an afterlife. Is it difficult to, for you to understand that, that there are no cracks in that belief? I wouldn't. Well, I mean, I would sort of reverse the Pascalian wager and say, well, let's assume there is an afterlife, but there's a, just a chance there might not be. Uh, given that our daughter is going to get there anyway when she's 90, why not s save it till then? <laughs> Uh, I'm, I suppose I, well, I am just inherently a skeptic. I mean, why do people who believe in the afterlife weep when someone dies that they love? If they really thought they were just uh, going to meet up in a couple of years' time forever. They might have been in the middle of a conversation, maybe, that they wanted to finish. But that can be resumed. Um, <laughs> forever. Um, but, I mean, um, well, we know uh, some, some horrendous consequences follow from a passionate belief in the afterlife, and we see it now in, in ISIS. Um, and terrible things follow, and I think that, you know, the, the ISIS worldview is a subset of another general worldview, which is the belief in utopias. Mm. If you believe that you can make humankind happy forever, it wouldn't matter if you just slaughtered a few million along the way, because the service you're performing is so great. You can deliver humankind from all its sorrows. And that was one of the, you know, the Soviet communism obviously suffered from this in its very inception of not being able to make omelets without breaking eggs. And, um, so I think of the afterlife really as a subset of utopian thinking. In the Jehovah's Witness case, I mean, it's, it's not, you know, they're not blowing up marketplaces. You know, they're very polite, very pleasant people. And I've been to a couple of Sunday services. Um, and they're like all Sunday services, just very, very boring. <laughs> um, yeah, there are two elderly uh, Jehovah's Witnesses coming to my door all the time because they, yeah. 
know that I'm polite, um, and they, um, they keep coming back. Then why do you, why do they keep coming back? Because they you've because given they, them we, hope. I, I, I took the magazine uh, ah, the first yeah. time, so that's that's why. But you've equipped me now with a lot of questions that I can ask them. The one that generally um, makes them go away is you say, "Are you interested in double glazing?" Could I sell you some double glazing? Mm -hmm. I have a, a friend who says to the Jehovah's Witnesses that come to her door that she's a psychologist and she says, uh, you will come back when you're trying to leave the religion. So then we'll meet again. So that's <laughs> another way of putting yeah. it. But Fiona, yeah, sorry. It's tough. I mean, it's a tough religion because um, when you join the church, it's part of your duty to go out and proselytize and go from doorstep to doorstep. And in the secular Northwestern Europe, you know, it's a hard call. Anyone who's a believer already belongs to another church anyway. They're not suddenly going to jump ship from, you know, from the Anglican or Presbyterian Catholic church just because someone's knocked on their door. And those are just the, you know, the, the 10, 20% who are, are active in a church. The rest are just, you know, shopping and doing the rest of what, what you know, <laughs> living the material life. So it's a very hard and sad business, I think. Mm. We're knocking on doors. Yeah, it's sad, and that's maybe the thing that I've, if I take the magazine from them, I feel that they become a little happy because they kind of done their duty then, in a way. Usually when you go door to door with lots of things, you stuff them in a, a dustbin at the end of the day. Mm. Those, those double glazing leaflets. Mm. You always get 20 at a time. You notice. Yeah. Uh, Fiona May, the main character of the Children Act, she, um, well, her writing um, is also described as, um, uh, as good. It's uh, almost uh, ironic, almost warm, and it's, uh, it's crisp. Um, that would maybe be a description that would work for a, for a novelist as well, maybe, I don't know. Well, I was impressed, uh, w once I started properly working on this novel, I then read a lot of judgments, and the best of them were beautifully written. I mean, there's no question, these judges are very proud of their, not only of their prose styles, but of their range of references, so there would be... Um, in a discussion, say, of what uh, was right for a certain child that the courts had to make some kind of decision about, there would be a discussion of welfare or well-being. So instantly they would follow two or three paragraphs on what constitutes a good life. Um, and uh, that would bring in Aristotle, obviously, and um, they've all read up on positive psychology and... Uh, the range of historical and philosophical reference were, were, were impressive. But the clarity of the prose, I would have expected you know, really contorted, difficult to understand prose. I, I was agreeably surprised by how well these senior judges could write. And often, this is the other impressive thing, it's not as if they get to do six drafts. Often these are just transcripts of what they've spoken in court and they've had one chance quickly to go through it, correct it before it goes to the uh, printer afterwards to, to go into the family law review. 
So at that level too, uh, the speed, I mean, I trailed my, uh, while I was doing this, I went in and various courts in the courtrooms in the Royal Courts of Justice in, in the Strand in London. Uh, the judge would be turning over four or five cases in which crucial decisions would affect the future of children or, or their parents or other, or sick people or whatever it was. Five or six in a morning, you know, whereas you know, a novelist could spend three or four years <laughs> agonizing over the fate of their character, and, and at least it's an imaginary person. Hmm. And here this is done at... So the, the speed with which you have to get your mind around the case, and often they only address this case 10 minutes before coming into the courtroom. And they're, slight, they're rather depending on the barristers on each side, because English law is very adversarial. It's not an investigative process. I don't know how it is in Sweden. Is it more like the sort of Napoleonic investigative system here, or is it... Adversarial. I'm not really sure. We have to ask the Swedes then. Mm. Oh, okay. I'll find out afterwards. Um, but it's often the barristers who are reminding the judges of the law mm. and what scope they have. But still, the speed with which one man or woman has to get his or her mind round a vast amount of detail and to get to the essence of it and deliver it. And for that reason, terrible mistakes are made too. I mean, the law is also, can also be an ass, I mean, a real fool, and make terrible decisions. Um, and for that reason, it's rather like any human institution, like medicine, mistakes get made, people go to prison who are innocent, um, and even on appeal, they don't get out. Yeah, because it could always, uh, almost be something that got you worried too, in a way, because it being tantalizing reading uh, is a nice thing for a novelist, but behind this, as you say, there are all these destinies uh, that we mm. don't know of. And it's kind of assuring in a way that the legal language is uh, not easily penetrated in a way then. Well, you mean it's necessarily obscure? Mm. Yeah, um, the judgments aren't obscure. I mean, the ju that, that's what seems so extraordinary to me. They were a bit like novellas. Um, there'd be an outline of the case, just two pages, giving you all, all the main, like a setup of a first chapter. Then there would be the characters, and then there would be the outcome, you know, which is you're to go there, you're to do there, you're never to see your child again, you are going to prison. I mean, you know, the world is like divided up, at the, like the end of the Caucasian chalk circle. Or something. Extraordinary. Your main character, Fiona May, is called for because she has this uh, late-night duty in a way, even though she is lying on her chest alone and drinking scotch with more and more water in it. Uh, and then it is this case with the blood transfusion, as, you, as you've said. And it's this interesting development. Um, if it hadn't been for the fact that she is going to visit this young boy uh, in the hospital, the no uh, novel would have been ended by less than 100 pages. Uh, Mm. Why did you choose to put her in a cab and make her go to the, the hospital? To well, she has to, uh, there has to, I mean, my, my premise was that because she's in a, an unusual state of mind, uh, actually one box does leak into the other, as it were. <laughs> she thinks she's holding them apart. But she makes a, a, something of a wild decision, which is to suspend the court proceedings go to the hospital, sit with the boy, 
and find out a bit more about him. And this could happen? Well, it happened in the case that my friend, the judge, told me. It happens less and less now, but 25 years ago, um, judges would make children what's called their ward of court. In other words, they become sort of in loco parentis of that child. And although it was unusual even then, I mean, it did now and then happen. A judge would simply say, I'm going to find out for myself. You all wait here. So the court just sits and waits. Now, in the case of my friend, the judge, um, he went to the boy's bedside. They spent a whole hour talking about football. Uh, the boy was a, a huge fan of Tottenham Hotspur football team. I have no interest in football. Uh, but I was fascinated by the fact that the boy had his blood transfusion in the real case, he came out of hospital. The judge then, through a friend uh, who was a director of uh, the Tottenham Hotspur football team, took the boy and his father, who was a very strict Jehovah's Witness, to a football game. The boy then met all his uh, heroes, shook hands with you know, Paul Gascoigne or whoever played for Tottenham Hotspur at that point. And the judge thought, when he saw the gleam of joy in the boy's eyes, how vindicated he was in keeping him alive. And it was only seven years later, he read in a footnote of another case that the boy had turned 18 and then he was 22. Uh, he got leukemia again. He went back into hospital, refused a blood transfusion. This time the court could do nothing because he was over 18 and he died. And, and, and I forgot to say that it was that tragic element too that drew me to, to this novel because I thought, again, that has the quality of Greek tragedy in my mind, that, that the boy should be so joyful and yet still his adherence to a few lines in Genesis, Acts and Leviticus uh, would determine his fate. Mm. Mm. Did you have any impression when it comes to uh, the feelings uh, of an honorable, very distinguished judge in, in such a situation, reading of this, uh, about this boy's death? He was stricken, yeah. He really was. Uh, it really threw him, uh, by his account, and I believe him. Uh, it, it meant, it's one of those situations, I'm sure we all have time to time, where you learn something and it throws everything that you knew uh, into reverse. You, you have to recalibrate the past. Um, so yes, it was a, a, a very important moment for him. And then your story had all the elements it needed. He was still telling me the story uh, and I was torn between listening to him uh, and thinking I've got to write this down quickly. Um, this is it. I'd made this decision three or four years ago when he was giving dinner, but I didn't, hadn't any idea of what it should be. But now I thought, this will form the bare bones, the structure um, of the case. So uh, it was a gift, really. And every now and then, I think, um, in a novelist's life, someone hands you something on a plate. Mm -hmm. um, and I was very, felt very lucky. And then we... He finished talking to it, and we listened to Andrea Schiff play the Goldberg variations. 
which is perfect music for me to, for my mind to be racing ahead on how this novel should should be written. Hmm. You've chosen a, a music repertoire also for this uh, novel. It's well, it doesn't start maybe, but it, in in the hospital, um, there's a scene where they together sing the the song Sally Gardens down by the Sally Gardens. Mm. Um, I don't. It's a familiar tune probably for many among the audience, and you might sing it. I don't know. First. I think I won't. Uh, <laughs> I'd like so, at least someone to read this novel. This would <laughs> might put them off. Yeah, music does play a, a part in this, and as it has in in quite a lot of my novels. Um, sometimes music is a great way of um, finding the heart of a character. It doesn't have to be classical music. It could be jazz, could be folk music, pop music, anything. Uh, I used it a lot in my novel On Chesil Beach, partly as a way of defining uh, two characters who were not quite understanding each other. Uh, a young man passionate about the music of, say, Chuck Berry, uh, and, a, and the young woman that he's just married, um, who is a member of a classical string quartet, who can't understand why... Chuck Berry's songs, which are all in simple 4-4 time, should need a drummer. <laughs> uh, that's the level of misunderstanding they have. Hmm. And Fiona May is also, a, she's a pianist, and, and she, I guess she, she loves the accuracy of, of classical music. She's more a classical musician than a that jazz person, in a, in a way. Yes, like many classically trained pianists, they simply cannot play jazz at all. So she tries to play Thelonious Monks around midnight and it sounds like a very bad piece of Debussy. <laughs> um, because she can't get that slightly syncopated, delayed, you don't land on the beat, you're just either slightly before it, just after it, or that pulse um, that characterizes jazz. Uh, and that freedom away from what's written uh, is very difficult, I think, when you've been... I mean, there are one or two marvellous pianists. Uh, I mean, I think of Keith Jarrett, who's a classically trained musician, um, but a superb... I mean, at the sort of level of a Mozart, of, a, of an improviser. Um, and that's why, that's why she respects him, probably, because she hears this... That's the only bit of jazz she understands, actually, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I notice that lots of jazz musicians, however brilliant they are, their hands can never move as independently as classical musicians have taught their hands to move. Um, so often they're laying down chords with the left hand and something melodic is happening on the right, um, Keith Jarrett, you notice, can be doing something in 3-4 time on his left hand and 5-7 time on his right hand, but then he's played Ravel and Strauss and you know, he can, he's got his feet um, in, in both camps. But so, uh, yes, I suppose it's a key to Fiona's character that she cannot move out of the written the judgment, as it were, of Bach, or the judgment of Schubert. Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen, is another 
piece of music that is chosen for her by you. So uh, it yeah, almost comments the novel. This won't mean much to anyone here except maybe 1%. But anyway, it's a, a beautiful uh, set of six songs by Mahler. Uh, it's not everyone's cup of tea. Um, solo voice and piano in the classical tradition. I mean, it is quite difficult because the voices are so mannered. And having just written the screenplay uh, for this novel, and I was thinking a lot about the music, uh, I thought I, I need to find a replacement for a, a tenor <laughs> singing um, Berlioz's uh, Nuit d'été. Um, so I chose um, a very beautiful, uh, and actually a jazz standard, My Funny Valentine. Um, partly because I think that tradition of songwriting is much closer to a natural voice. Um, so ho however brilliant a singer, say, Fischer Diskow is, unless you like that kind of music, uh, for most people, hearing the opening of the Winterreiser uh, is, can be a punishment. I, I listened to, to uh, driving to, to the airport in Oslo today. I, I listened on YouTube to Fischer Disco singing Ich bin der Welt abhanden gekommen. It's beautiful. Yes, but... Uh, but, <laughs> but it's a punishment. I switched, I switched it off, actually. Before. Yeah. Well, as they say in the gymnasium, no pain, no gain. Um, so some art is difficult, and um, you have to suffer for someone, someone else's art, not only your own. But you have then re uh, recently finished the, the, the script for, for, for the movie then? Yeah. What was that experience like? It's quite good fun, actually. Uh, I think it only works. My theory of this is it can be quite boring to go back into the material, especially when it's a recently finished novel and you want to be getting on with the next thing and you're back with Fiona and Jack and you've given a few interviews about it and you're rather tired of even saying their names, let alone typing them. Uh, but actually, once you get going, you realize that there's a whole s set of problems that have to be solved. Um, things that work in a novel that can't work on film. For example? Um, well, for example, a crucial piece of information in this novel is contained in a poem, and a missing line in a poem. It would be very pedestrian in a movie to try and get an audience's mind around this poem and a missing line and the significance of it. Uh, it's fine on the page. You can take that information in. You can't do it, uh, I think, in the sort of the constant flow, especially of a, of a movie that's reaching a climax. So lots of li little things like that. And the establishment of character. In the novel, we don't get to the Jehovah's Witness boy till almost halfway through. Um, in a movie, maybe that works as a tease, maybe you should see him straight away, but it's a, another matter to, to address. I think of screenplays, they're, they're very like novellas. I mean, a, a, your average screenplay is about 20,000 words. Uh, Translating a short novel or a novella into a screenplay is much easier than if one was to take a 600-page novel and do it. There isn't that ruthless matter of dumping 
stuff you like or um, having to sort of leave behind whole areas of, of, of consideration. Here you can more or less just find the equivalent. It could take you, a fast reader could read this novel maybe in four hours, three or four hours. Uh, a movie could be two hours or just less. So it's not quite the sacrifice. So I've had quite a nice time with it. Yeah, and for a while you have the delight of having colleagues to work together with. That's, I mean, if you sit most of your time alone, uh, it's rather great to have the phone ringing and to sit and collaborate with people, even though it's infuriating when people start telling you what your novel is really about <laughs> and uh, what he would really say and so on. But I love film sets, uh, the controlled panic, uh, it's like a bloodletting. Um, the production is like a, a person, and, and th there's about $100,000 of blood coming out of his arm every day. Um, and you've got to, you know, there is a budget, you've got to work within it. Things always go wrong. The weather is wrong, something, someone gets ill, uh, and yet it has to be made uh, within that time frame and within that budget. And I like. And I suppose this has a, a great effect on this is, shares uh, an element that has caused me to write about people's work lately. I love other people's expertise, focus pullers and guys who can erect something, carpenters and fitters, in unbelievable uh, circumstances. Things that weren't expected. Director has a change of mind, or the weather forces some compromise. Something has to be built, and it can be built in 90 minutes. And it's absolutely exciting to, to watch that. Mm. I really love it. I remember you telling this wonderful story when you, you prepared for the novel Saturday, uh, being at the hospital and students coming, uh, approaching you, asking you questions, believing that you, they mistook, mistook you for the doctor, and you answered the questions they had as well. Well, it was true that I watched a lot of operations with one doctor. His name was Neil Kitchen, a superb brain surgeon. And I shadowed him for about 18 months. And one day, two students came in, fifth-year medical students. And I was there in all my finery of green scrubs. And I'd even learned to do what all the male doctors do, is make sure your chest hair just curls over the V. Um, <laughs> uh, so I was, I had stepped back from the table and I was standing to one side and the two uh, female medical students came in and they said, uh, excuse us, doctor, uh, do you mind if we stay and watch? And I said, no, no, that's fine. And, <laughs> and uh, then they said, could you explain what's going on? And I thought, I've done so much research. If I can't do this, I can't write this novel. So I said, well, what we are doing here um, <laughs> is clip, clipping um, a middle cerebral artery aneurysm. And if you'd like to come to the light box, um, where there were 16 CT scans, I'll show you the, and I explained the route we were taken, which was a uh, route uh, first um, elaborated by a famous Canadian neurosurgeon and I showed them um, where the aneurysm was and how far we were through 
and at the end they thanked me profusely and um, and I always wondered how they got on in their exams um, <laughs> uh, uh, and if they ever learnt uh, what a source of misinformation they might have had from me. But that was my most intense involvement mm. in research. I've never been quite so caught up in it. Um, I mean, the law is... Uh, most of my questions in this novel had to do with just daily things. You know, what would the clerk call the judge? What would the judge call the clerk in their office? Did, did they ever small talk? Did the... Um, what does the judge wear in family court? Is a family court judge ever in the Queen's bench in wigs and robes? Um, and I went along to some um, very arcane and quite wonderful initiation processes by which a, a barrister becomes a judge and um, takes an oath of loyalty which is unchanged since the 15th century. And, uh, all that was fascinating, but it was not like having to learn so that I could describe it with some confidence, the intricacies of, of brain surgery. Mm. Yeah, because the Saturday example sounds almost like um, being an equivalent to the method acting of... Uh, yeah, of acting I probably... It fascinated me anyway. So I, and I felt at the time that it, was, it, it would be best to know ten times as much as I needed in order to be able to move freely so there's an awful lot I never actually used at all. Mm. But with all respect for your profession, uh, have you kind of longed for a more, um, or another kind of profession? Well, um, I thought I wouldn't mind being the lead guitarist of um, a Grateful Dead tribute band. <laughs> <laughs> I heard one once uh, play in Ronnie Scott's and I thought, I thought, oh, God, that must be just paradise to play in a really tight, fast, hard, um, well-organized, beautifully um, sympathetic, harmonized rock and roll band. Hmm. <laughs> but you wouldn't want to be the bass guitarist or, or the drummer. Hmm. You'd have to be the lead guitarist. I mean, how anyone could suffer not being the lead guitarist, I don't know. <laughs> But also in solar, I mean, the, the, the profession is an important uh, identity marker that yeah. you use a lot in your I've, novels. I've, I mean, I'm, I'm not doing it anymore in the novel I'm writing now, uh, but the last two or three novels I've got very interested in people's work. Uh, and work as a sort of key of identity. What, what adults spend their day doing to earn their bread um, often becomes them. And whole vocabularies, specialized vocabularies, but not even only the vocabularies, just ways of being uh, grow up around this. And I don't know how it is here, but um, the novel in the English tradition, especially with modernism, rather avoided work. Really. And if you think of the novels of Henry James, everyone's on a private income. Uh, and there's there's... there's it's very useful for a novelist to have all your characters on a private income because all the necessities of life are met. And, and this is, was James' own explanation for this. So then you can confront the real issues of existence. Whereas I take the, take the other way around, that the issues of real existence are often to do with work. You know, they come out of that. 
so often marriages come out of it, uh, personal conflicts, ambition, the kind of person you are, shapes your work, the work shapes you, it's an interesting loop. But the vocabularies too, and the vocabulary in the law is uh, all the shortcuts of, um, of saying things, so that if you're outside it, uh, if you're you, someone getting divorced or you've brought a case or something, half the time you've no idea what's being actually arranged over your head. Uh, not because the words are long, it's just that their whole concepts are wrapped into one tiny uh, or a couple of simple words. Um, someone says ex parte. It took me ages to work out what was going on. An ex parte application, it means one side applies without the other side knowing about it. <laughs> uh, a useful ruse. So all of this become part of your language as well then? Briefly. And then, like most novelists, I'm a complete dilettante. Everything I learned about neurosurgery is faded. Um, all the intricacies of the physics of climate change are no longer quite at my fingertips. It's a kind of dilettante immersion for about the period it takes you to get a university degree. Mm. About three or four years, you're completely in it, and just like everyone's university degree, if you sat it now, you would fail, <laughs> which is why we all dream about it. You know, so taking our degree again without our trousers on, you know, those sort of um, saying, but I've already got this degree. That's a, certainly one of my recurrent dreams, anyway. Um, but the drama um, that is played out without, uh, within these characters' professional life yeah. uh, is not enough, probably. It, it's often paired with a turbulent or problematic private life, then. Yeah, I mean, I don't think that I'm unique in this respect. But novels, or not only novels, but literature has always explored human bad behavior and conflict, misunderstanding, etc. I mean, what's what's Homer's Odyssey but you know, a series of disasters? And even when he gets home to Ithaca, you know, his wife doesn't even recognize him because um, he hasn't washed for twenty years. So, um, it is uh, always a, the most dangerous thing for a novelist to do, attempt to describe extended happiness. Um, I mean, that famous saying of uh, Henri de Montalon, the French Catholic novelist, that, that happiness writes in white ink on a white page uh, is a good warning to novelists. I'd spent you know, a lot of my youth writing very dark, psychopathic characters, and there was incest and murder and God knows what. When I tried to write about a um, happily married couple in Saturday, I got, I mean, it was as if I'd murdered uh, 10 children. Um, it, uh, so um, it's very difficult to do happiness is probably the domain of poetry because it's the nature of human fates only to be happy briefly, yeah. now and then. You know. And lyric poetry or uh, poetry of the moment captures exactly that. It's not generally part of human fates to 
be constantly happy. Uh, and it's rather unreal. In fact, sooner or later, something wobbles. All the dinner plates that are spinning on your sticks to maintain your happiness, one plate is going to come off. Which is why I think the novel is best suited to exploring the cracks in our surfaces and uh, in our fates. So uh, if you enter the world of work, you're also going to enter the world of something going, some difficulty in that work, something's got to go wrong. What about love then? What about love? Yeah, <laughs> about describing love. Could we, see, could we say that this latest book of yours It's kind of a love story too. It is a love story, but it, uh, but it's a love story between a 60-year-old woman and a 17-year-old boy, and it's never stated. Uh, she can hardly. She's a she's a childless woman who regrets that she was so busy and life flashed by. She never found quite the right moment to have a baby, and then it was too late. Then she wondered about adoption. Then she just couldn't think how she could fit a child into her professional existence but it remains a sort of little hum of little background noise of sadness. And in this boy in hospital, she sees the child she never had, but it's slightly more than that too. It's also um, almost like there's a, love, there's a possibility of a love affair, but of course it's, it's not even touched upon. But she does kiss him. She makes a great professional error, kissing him on the lips. Um, the best description of love and happiness that I know is in Anna Karenina. Um, when Levin's marriage to Kitty is in its first sort of eight or nine months. And then they have a visitor and Levin gets jealous and everything goes wrong and it's full of pathos because Kitty is such a delightful, loyal person. You know that he's completely uh, wrong in uh, attacking her. But that is very, very sustained. I mean, that's, I, I, mean I, I haven't read it now for five years, but in my, in my memory it takes up scores, if not a hundred pages, of most extraordinary love and happiness. So to even do a quarter of that would, I think, uh, any novelist would be proud. I saw this conversation online between you and Richard Dawkins discussing religion. Yeah. The, the prominent professor and scientist and writer of The Selfish Gene, among other things, and a very active man on Twitter uh, fighting against the religion. Um, This book of yours is, is uh, a much more subtle way of criticizing religion. If it is a way of criticizing religion, would you say it is? I really would turn it the other way round and say that I want to make the case... I mean, if we don't have religion, what's going to be the basis of our moral codes? I mean, I think we've passed that point of the argument where we still think without God there'd be no morals. We know that People with God can behave terribly uh, as well as well, and the people with no gods at all uh, can also behave well as, as well as terribly. Uh, and also, religious people go to their texts for what they want. I mean, if we lived by the 
if Christians live by the Bible, you know, which is at least certainly in the Old Testament, but not exclusively in the in the New as well. There's genocide and enslavement and terrible misogyny and you know, just about every sin you could think of endorsed by a, a jealous God. So what is going to be the basis of our our moral code? So I. I'd want to make the case for it has to be a mix. There has to be a powerful element of compassion and there has to be rationality. There has to be a sense that every moral decision you make enables the greatest possible well-being in others and the greatest possible mental freedom. Now, that's all easy to say. You still get moral issues which are often choices between lesser evils. But I, that's the way round. I, rather than attack religion, which now bores me, really, to, it doesn't seem interesting enough. I can't be a sort of Sam Harris or even Richard Richard Dawkins in his manifestations of himself 15 years ago when he was a, leading a crusade against religion. Uh, then you have to get to the other side. You say, okay, well, how do you make meaning in life? Um, and I think that looking at the law and when it's at its best, its best moments, I saw rationality, compassion, and the pursuit of uh, the best well-being um, and the best mental freedom um, manifested in in the very the most articulate judgments that I read. So that was my pursuit here, not, I mean, it'd be easy to deride the beliefs of the Jehovah's Witnesses, which seem to be formed around a few dietary restrictions from the Iron Age, you know, for which you might let your child die. That's, I mean, you, you, you don't need to be spending a, two years writing a novel about that. But would you say that the legal system uh, contain some kind of respect for religion? Yes, they, uh, it, I don't know how it is here, but um, judges usually bend over backwards to be very, very respectful. But they take, at the be again, I'm only talking best case, because I know the law can also be stupid. But at its best, the law respects religion, but takes no view as to whether God or the afterlife exists, or whether... Um, these um, lines from Leviticus are the literal words of God or, or anything like that. They just accept that um, sincere, devout uh, believers are entitled to their views. But if they've come to court, they've put themselves at the mercy of a judge um, because of some difference, some squabble, some uh, fight between two parties. They've abandoned their freedom of choice and come before... Uh, another authority who's going to decide for them. And the basis for that cannot be faith. Um, it has to be, um, well, when, when children are involved, and that's why I think um, the Children Act was an important piece of legislation in Britain, uh, it has a very simple first sentence. It simply says, when there are issues of children's welfare come before the court, the children's interests are paramount 
are the most important. In other words, children are not the possession of their parents. Uh, and although it sounds quite tautologous and something that you couldn't object to, actually the consequences are quite enormous. When a judge decides which parent or you know, what's going to happen to two children who are suddenly uh, in the, uh, their fates of rest with the court, you don't think anymore, well, what does the mum want? What does the dad want? You have to say the judge is constrained by law to ask herself, what is the best for this child? So that's a leap away from what would God want? What would Jesus do? Um, or what, what do the parents want? Or what does the priest want in the local church? Mm. God is uh, removed from the family department division in that matter. In one month, uh, I will um, interview Jonathan Franzen on this stage about his latest novel. Uh -huh. uh, and I just, uh, from a little bit of curiosity, wanted to ask you if there's, in your opinion, still only one great American writer named Philip Roth, or if you've changed your mind. Uh, no, I thought the great American writer was John Updike, um, now deceased. Um, but the, yes, uh, I think it annoyed Jonathan when I said there were these three peaks of, um, uh, in American fiction and these one, two of them were dead. Uh, I think he even wrote to me about it. Um, um, I'm halfway through Purity, uh, completely uh, glued to it. Uh, I love freedom and corrections. Uh, so, um, you know, he's a force. Um, tell him from me. <laughs> and thank you for this book. Thank you so much, Ian McEwen. Thank you. Thanks.